If you got a Bible, go to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter three. If you're trying to figure out where that is, you can kind of open in the middle. It'll probably be Psalms and then turn to the right. You'll hit Proverbs. And then one more book is Ecclesiastes. Um, I'll say this as we get going today. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks when we started this series, uh, the first two weeks, it's felt like walking with the teacher um, some translations call him the preacher, the, this guy that wrote Ecclesiastes. It felt like we've been walking with the teacher through the cellar of his palace, right? And uh, we've been sort of wading through the cobwebs and it's dusty down there. And he keeps highlighting in the cellar the good life experiment data that he found. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's his good life experiment. It's him trying to answer the question, where's a meaningful life going to be found? What's a life of true happiness really look like? What's a deep life look like? What's a life of beauty look like? And in his good life experiment, he goes high road and he goes low road and trying to find the good life. What do I mean? Well, he goes high road and he toils and works at trying to find a meaningful life in the things that are socially acceptable, like education. He becomes brilliant and incredibly educated. He starts institutes of higher learning in the land. And then he tries high road by going to the route of career, right? He's super successful. He's super prosperous. He tries conservation. He builds lakes and ponds and forests, and he cares about nature. Uh, And then he goes high road with family, right? Like he highlights the beauty and importance of family. But all of those high road pursuits, all of the toil, all the, the effort, all the labor that he put into those, at the end of the day, here's what he says. His conclusion is those things are meaningless under the sun. Now, it doesn't mean that family doesn't matter and that jobs don't matter. Here's what he's saying, though. If you aim the desire of your life to have a meaningful life, a deep life, a beautiful life on any of those good things under the sun, you're going to end up really frustrated. And he uses this word like 30 times in this book. It's a Hebrew word called havel, which basically literally means smoke or vapor. Here's what he's saying. If you try to aim at those things to be the source of the good life, like smoke, you're going to try to grab it and it's not going to stick. It's elusive. And then he also tries low road, right? We, we talked about that last week when we looked at pleasure. He tries hedonism. He tries wine. He tries food. He tries tons of sex with all kinds of different concubines and wives. And he gets to the end of the low road and his conclusion is the same. This is havel. It's like smoke, vapor. It's meaningless. Now, as we've been walking with him through the basement of his palace and he's been like shining his flashlight on all the data from his experiment, today's pretty interesting because it feels in tone like he invites us out of the basement for just a minute. Like we we get to get a a breath of fresh air. We get to come up into the sunlight and he, he sort of has a twinkle in his eye and he exclaims, ah, time. We've got to talk about time. If you're going to figure out what the good life looks like, if you're going to live a wise life, if you're going to have a life of depth and meaning and beauty, we have to talk about time. And in this chapter, chapter three, he actually breaks out into poetry talking about time under the sun. And I think it's really wise that he includes this in a book of wisdom because we're temporal beings in a temporal world, which means we're always wrestling with time, right? We say things like uh, we're killing time. We're biding our time. We're wasting time. We're managing our time. Uh, We wonder where the time went. Anybody else? Right? We we say things like we don't have enough hours in the day. We look back on sometimes and we say, hey, remember when? We fear the advancing of time. We know that time slips through our fingers, right? Uh, I never thought that I would become the guy that tells every new parent, like, 
don't waste this. It's going to be gone really fast. But now I'm that guy, right? I have two teenagers. And every time I talk to a young couple, I'm like, hey man, don't be in a rush. Don't be in a rush for them to be out of diapers because it's really beautiful what you got right now. And it's going to be gone quick. Time is all around us and time affects our lives. Sometimes it crawls, sometimes it flies. But at the end of the day, because we live in this temporal world, it's really difficult to think about what life is and how we experience life as human beings if we don't wrestle with time. And at the end of the day, here's what's crazy. In the beginning, before the fall of the world and the fall of humanity, God made time to just be our friend. And it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around that. Like to imagine a universe where the law of entropy, which just simply means things move from order to chaos, Things are beautiful and bright and alive. And then over time, they erode and they fall apart and they break down. To imagine a universe where time was just our friend is kind of more than my capacity to dream even has. Like to think of seasons changing in the beginning and those seasons changing doesn't lead to death and decay, but to more and more life and delight. It's hard for me to even imagine. And now here we are east of Eden, living in a world that's fallen with fallen bodies and fallen desires and everything around us has been touched by sin. And the result of that fall is that east of Eden, time isn't particularly kind to human beings. Time doesn't really care about our complaints and time is coming for all of us and it's affecting every bit of our lives. And yet there's some really good news about time under the sun because of Jesus. So take your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 3. Most of you have heard this poem starting in verse one. For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, time for war and a time for peace. One pastor that wrote a book about Ecclesiastes describes this poem as the delights and the disquiets of time. And I think that's pretty accurate, right? Because this teacher, this wise trainer of the people of God, here's what he's saying. Under the sun, time is going to bring with it some really beautiful things that are delightful for your soul. And time's also going to bring with it some things that are going to disquiet your soul, that are going to disrupt your soul, that are going to perplex your soul. Look at the delights he mentions. He talks about birth, birth. Um, For me personally, I I can't really think of a moment in my life that's been more profound or holy than the birth of my children. It's just a moment where, where time is actually rich and it's alive and it's beautiful. And the sight of seeing my wife nurse our newborn babies, like that's just a holy, beautiful moment. There's a time to plant. Uh, I was raised in Southern California where there really aren't seasons and moving to Oklahoma. uh, And I get that you take the good and the bad with the seasons, but I love springtime. 
right? Springtime is this beautiful moment where we get to put things in the ground in anticipation that they're going to grow. Um, a few years ago, we were out at a friend's land near El Reno, and they let us dig up a little bit of prickly pear cactus, like Oklahoma prickly pear. And we planted that in, uh, in our redneck, in a little redneck bathtub that's in our back- backyard. And it, it could be worse. It could be like an El Camino that we planted it in. But <laughs> no, nonetheless, we planted, it, we planted it in a bathtub. And over the last four or five years, that, that prickly pear is just it's just like quadrupled. It's huge. It covers the whole bathtub. And this last week, um, the flowers are all blooming, right? So we have these beautiful yellow flowers all over that cactus. And all I want to do is just sit in the backyard and enjoy the time of planting in spring. Then he mentions healing. This is the time of restoration. It makes me think of Nelson Mandela getting released from Robben Island. And uh, instead of Instead of responding to the injustice of apartheid with bitterness, he actually brought the whole nation into a moment of healing and reconciliation. These are seasons that come. There's a time to build up. There's times of laughter and dancing, embracing, seeking, keeping, sowing, love and peace. And all of these beautiful delights that time brings, uh, get this, what we're going to see is that they're all gifts of God's grace They're all gifts of God's mercy to people living under the sun. But to have wisdom, to have a sense of reality in the universe that we live in, to know how badly we need Jesus, we also have to be honest about the disquiets of time. And he lists them. He talks about the time to die, time to pluck up what's planted, a time to kill and to break down, a time to weep and a time to mourn time to cast away stones, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to lose, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to keep silence, a time to hate, and a time for war. And the problem that we have for a lot of us is that our personalities, our disposition, our upbringing tends to get us to lean towards either focusing on the disquiets and ignoring the delights or on the delights and being dishonest about the disquiets. And wisdom is recognizing, it's recognizing that Eeyore spirituality and Joel Osteen spirituality, neither one of those are really helpful, right? Uh, I've got friends and their spiritual disposition is like Eeyore spirituality. It's like, hey dude, it's, it's like 70 degrees outside. We're hanging out, we're eating chips and salsa. We don't have to talk about the fact that we're all gonna die in this moment. Like that can be unspoken. We can save that for the next conversation. Right? It's like there's, there's a bleakness to some of our outlook that's really, that's really not factoring in the fact that God in his grace has also given us things like friends and family and feasting and all the gifts of grace. And then there's people that, that tend towards Joel Osteen. If you're a big Joel Osteen fan, uh, you can go ahead and email Justin Coffey about all the things I'm about to say. Uh, God bless him, but Joel Osteen's whole spirituality is just focusing on the delights. It's if you just believe enough in God, but kind of yourself, if you just have enough positive thinking, if you just sort of look at the bright side of everything, and if you, if you, if you really try hard enough, everything's going to go great. You're always going to be prosperous and you're always going to win and you're always going to succeed in life. And the problem with that is life, right? The problem with that is life, that real life is not like that. And what this writer is doing, what the teacher is doing is throughout Ecclesiastes, he's framing up the delights and he's framing up the disquiets and he's warning us against three really dangerous things. 
Here's what he's warning us against. One, he says, don't try to control the seasons of time. Don't try to control the seasons of time. In Ecclesiastes 11, he unpacks all the ways in which based on fear and based on a desire for security that we try to hold on to all the things of life and we end up squeezing them to death, right? He says, don't don't try to control life. You can't control life. You're not God. He warns us against retreating from life. This is the stance of the cynic, right? It's like, uh, I've had my heart broken, so I'm just gonna protect it and keep it safe which actually doesn't protect it or keep it safe, does it? It's retreating from life. Um, if, if you love anything, C.S. Lewis said, even a pet, you're going to get your heart broken. But is it better to love or not to love? Well, to not love is to retreat from life and to actually live a vain life. And he warns us against speculating on these seasons as they come and go. And here's what he means by that. He doesn't want us to pretend to be God to understand why the delights and the disquiets come when they come or how they come or to whom they come to. This is what Job's buddies do in Job, right? Job's going through profound suffering and his friends are like, hey, let me go ahead and tell you why you're suffering. And they speculate and and they've got good religious formulas. It just happens to be that none of their religious formulas were right about why Job was suffering. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is wanting us to see is that time's going to bring delight and time's going to bring disquiet. And we actually have to wrestle with what is that telling us about what's beyond the sun? What is that leading our hearts into longing for? What is that leading us into wrestling with? And this is where it gets really profound and really beautiful. This is where the gospel of Jesus Christ shines through Ecclesiastes like crazy. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse nine. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to men. I love this. Here's what he's saying. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And God has done something really unique and crazy with these beings called humans. He's planted eternity into our hearts. Now, here's what's happening in this because there's a bit of conflict there, isn't there? God making everything beautiful in its time under the sun means that none of the things under the sun actually stay beautiful. Bodies break down. Loves drift. Houses crumble. Nations peak and then decline and go away. Things are beautiful in their time, And God makes that beauty shine as a gift to people. And yet, because of this fallen world that we live in, none of the beautiful things ever last. There's not permanence in the beauty. And in our hearts, here's what we have. We've got this whisper of eternity that makes us want to protest all of the disquiets. And it makes us want to keep all of the delights. And it leads us to a place of real futility as human beings. We have the echo of eternity banging around in our hearts and it makes us long for things to last. We long for love to last. I mean, 
Think about how many people in our church are from broken families. It's like the majority of our church have massive family trauma and drama that we grew up with. And then you get older and you start trying to build your family. And it's like, you want to build, you want to build the antithesis of what you had. You want to build a family that's going to last for the long haul. And you try to set it up and you do everything you can to try to make that happen. But despite your best intentions, what happens? Families tend often under the sun to drift. Kids move away, right? We want homes that last. We want a world that doesn't wear out. We want bodies that don't break down. My wife has the gift of encouragement. We were hanging out this week. And she was like, hey, you know what? Your beard is like 60% gray now. I was like, man, thanks for that romance talk, my beloved. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, my body is changing. Time is having its way with us, right? And, and we fight against it like crazy. We protest it. We, we, we do yoga and we drink wheatgrass and we go on diets and we go to the gym. And, oh, that's great, man. It, but here's, here's the reality. You, you can do all the Pilates you want to do. Gravity's still going to do its thing, right? It is. It is. You can't fight against it. And yet that eternity in our heart, man, that eternity in our heart, it so longs for permanence. Can you just be honest about how badly you want permanence for yourself and for your loves and for the things that matter in this world? Jonathan Franzen is a novelist and, and uh, he, he includes some raunchy stuff in his books, but he's also one of the best writers, one of the best novelists I've ever read. And he's just one of those guys that I don't think he's a Christian, but he writes about idolatry in ways that I never even thought to think of, right? Like he just nails idolatry. And in his book, Freedom, which was one of my favorite novels of last year, he writes this. It was such a sweetly clean old fashioned room and Walter, such a sweetly clean, old-fashioned person. And she was 21 and could feel her 21-ness. And the young, clean, strong wind that was blowing down from Canada, her own little taste of eternity. Here's how the poet Wallace Stevens put it. He says, but in contentment, I still find the need for an imperishable bliss. Like, yes, yes, that is the human condition. God makes everything beautiful in its time, but he's placed eternity in our hearts. We long for permanence. We want the beauty to last. We want the disquiets to not get the last word. And, and here's the truth. If something from beyond the sun, if something that's not temporal, doesn't step into this world that moves from beauty to chaos to bring redemption and restoration, then the best we can possibly hope for is just managing the disquiets and trying to maximize the delights. And yet, what would it look like if the eternal did come into the temporal, right? What would it look like? What would it look like if that longing you have for permanence wasn't there because God is trying to toy with you or mess with you or put a desire in your soul for some food that doesn't even exist? What would it look like if the desire for permanence was actually an invitation from God that led you to see what he's done in Jesus? Here's what happens through the cross of Christ. It's crazy. 
It's crazy. It's the most scandalous news that's ever been told to humanity. Here's what happens. The eternal God outside of time, not affected by entropy, the unchanging one, right? He's immutable. He doesn't shift. He doesn't change. He doesn't grow old. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. Here's what he does 2,000 years ago. He takes on flesh and comes to this temporal world, born of a virgin as a little baby. And Jesus, this is so wild. Jesus, who is 100% God and 100% man at the same time, Jesus actually tastes of all human delights and he experiences to the fullest all of our disquiets. And he does all of that. He does all of that so that he can move to the cross and resurrection and actually actually be the answer for the yearnings of a heart that was made for eternity. To reunite us with the father, to deal with sin, to deal with a creation that's always falling apart, to actually give us hope that one day all things will be made new. Here are the delights, birth and planting and healing and building up and laughter and dancing, embracing, seeking, keeping, sowing, love and peace. Is that not what Jesus experienced? Jesus was so free to laugh. Jesus, uh, he's the one that rescued a wedding that was about to jump the rails by doing his first miracle and multiplying water into wine, changing water into wine. And it was good wine. It wasn't like our communion box wine we serve you guys because we're on a budget. It was Jesus, Jesus doing this miracle of saying, hey, actually, actually, I want to say as God, there's dignity and value and beauty on the delights that God's given humanity. It's good to eat with friends. It's good to dance. It's good to embrace. Jesus embraced children. Love that. He hears God in the flesh, literally the most important person that's ever lived. And he doesn't have a sense of self-importance that makes him too busy for kids. He's hanging out with kids. He's hanging out with his friends. He's enjoying food. He's seeking and keeping those that the father gives him. He's love incarnate. He's peace incarnate. And that would be great, right? That would be like, oh man, Jesus is pretty awesome. What a great example of enjoying the delights of God. But if that's all Jesus was, we would still be doomed under the sun. Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus experiences the disquiets and he does it for us. There's a time to pluck up what's planted. Jesus was plucked up in his arrest and in his torture. There's a time to weep and a time to mourn. Uh, Hey, Jesus who is free with his laughter is also described by Isaiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There's a time to refrain from embracing. That was pointed at Jesus when his best friends and his nation rejected him. There's a time to lose. He lost his freedom, lost his life. There's a time to keep silence. Like a lamb led to the slaughter He did not open his mouth. There's a time to hate and a time for war. Jesus was born into a time of hate and a time of war. And there's a time to kill and there's a time to die. What Jesus does through his cross is not simply a good human example of protesting the system by laying down your life. It's so much more than that. What Jesus does through the cross and resurrection is he actually bears the penalty for all of our sin. 
He tastes of death to defeat death. He experiences all of these delights and all of these disquiets so that he could go to the cross, be raised from the dead to reunite us with the eternal God so that our delights and our disquiets would actually not be vain and meaningless under the sun. So what does this mean? Well, I want to give you three things to think about. Three things. It means one, because of Jesus, no disquiet is God forsaken. This might be the most profound, beautiful news for a person of faith that you could ever hear. Because of Jesus, no disquiet is ever God forsaken. Jesus was forsaken. He was cast off. He was crushed under the weight of our sin so that we could never be forsaken. And what this means is that any disquiet that comes your way as a follower of Jesus, and they will come your way, any disquiet you endure as a follower of Jesus is not because the father's abandoned you or because he's crushing you with his wrath. Every disquiet that comes your way is actually in Christ and with Christ and through Christ. And ultimately, even the worst disquiets under the sun, he's going to redeem and rescue for your benefit and for his glory. See, like there, there's no hall pass. Can we give you the fine print of being a Christian? There's no hall pass around the disquiets of this life. You, you don't get to pass on them. You don't meet Jesus and then get to navigate around aging and death and loss and grief. In fact, the Bible is really clear. Jesus warns his friends that these things are going to happen. The apostles tell their friends, Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. To be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you're not going to get old or that you're not going to lose people or that you're not going to get sick. But what it does mean is that all of those disquiets fail to get the last word on just how much the fathers loved you. And all of those disquiets actually in the work of Jesus are going to get redeemed and reworked to do something eternal in your life. In Genesis 50, 20, there's this guy named Joseph and he went through a lot of disquiets. His own siblings sold him into slavery. He got falsely accused. He got thrown in jail. I mean, he just lost decades of his life. And he tells them when he gets to confront his abusers, he, he does something really crazy. Genesis 50, 20, he says, as for you, You meant evil against me. You wanted to bring disquiet into my life. You were an agent of harm, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that my people, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Paul in Romans says this crazy, crazy thing. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, all disquiets and all delights. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So let me just stop here for a second and just say, there's a lot of disquiets in our church right now, right? There's a lot of disquiets that you brought with you today. There's a lot of disquiets that are warring against the peace of your soul. Jesus and being a servant of Jesus is not 
an exit strategy from the disquiets under the sun. But it is the guarantee that because of his finished work, he's with you and he's in you. And he's actually, even when we can't understand it, even when the disquiets feel like they're literally unmaking you, he's working in the disquiets to accomplish something of eternal beauty and value. Even when you have no idea what it is till you see him face to face. Brother Lawrence was a, was a monk and he kind of had the crummy job in the monastery. He was the guy that did a lot of the cooking and the dishes and menial labor. He wrote some really beautiful things in in a series of letters called the practice of the presence of God. Here's what he says. The difficulties of life do not have to be unbearable. It is the way we look at them through faith or unbelief that makes them so. We must be convinced that our father is full of love for us and that he only permits trials to come our way for our own good. Let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we'll desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. We will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. Hey, uh, if you're in a season of disquiet and your faith is in Jesus, nothing that's happening to you right now is because the father's abandoned you. He can't abandon you. Christ was cut off so that you could be grafted in. If you're in a time of disquiet and it feels like God has forgotten you, he can't forget you. You're written on his hands and on his heart. If you're in a time of disquiet, And it feels like you're being unmade. The promise of God, who's not a man that he should lie, is that actually, even in the disquiet, he's actually making you. He's forming something beautiful and glorious that's going to outlast, it's going to outlast every country on this planet. It's going to outlast our oceans. (laughs) Secondly, because of Jesus, not only is there no disquiet that's God forsaken? But secondly, there's no delight that's an end in itself. There's no delight that's an end in itself. Look at verse 12 again of Ecclesiastes 3. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Here's what's happening here. When Jesus is at the center of your life, when he rescues you and he's working in your life, what starts to happen is all the delights of life, far from being the ultimate goods that you have to have to be secure and to be joyful and to be happy, all of the delights of life, friendship, children, career, marriage, sunsets, all the things that God gives that are good, they just become signposts that point to the giver of those gifts. So that Our affections are not to terminate on the delights, but on the giver of the delights. We get to enjoy them in him and with him and through him. And just think about how radically it would change the way that we handle life and stuff and delights if we realized that every delight was a gift of God and we could enjoy those delights with him and through him. When you get a promotion at work, far from being like the end that you're seeking to satisfy and to give you the good life. When you realize that if you got a promotion, that's a gift of God's grace in your life. And now you can enjoy it with him and ask questions like, Hey Jesus, what do you want me to do with this? What does this mean? 
if you're in the season of singleness and you really read scripture, what you're going to find is that God actually calls it a holy thing, a, a calling. He calls singleness good and beautiful and valuable. If that's a gift, you get to stand in your time of singleness and say, okay, I'm not going to bind to the world's narrative that I'm incomplete till I find true love or the one. I'm going to stand in my time of singleness with him and in him and through him and see this as a sign that points to the giver of gifts. If you are a parent and you're banking on your kids to be your happiness, your joy, your comfort, your reason, your delight, I I promise you, you're asking them to carry weight that's going to crush them and it's going to crush you. But if they're gifts that point back to the giver so that we can worship him and thank him and enjoy the gifts in his presence, it changes everything. And lastly, because of Jesus and what he did in time to rescue us from the harshness of time. Finally, contentment in ordinary time is actually possible. Contentment in ordinary time. And uh, I'm preaching this to my heart as much as your hearts. Contentment's possible. We can actually enjoy ordinary lives. We can do what Paul commanded the Thessalonians to do. We could actually seek to live quiet lives and enjoy ordinary time as a gift. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians. I know how to be brought low, disquiets. I know how to abound, delights. In any and every circumstance, life, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and needs. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I love that. Here's what it's saying. In Jesus, you can be set free from living your life for the next vacation you can be set free for, from living your life just for Friday to get here. You could be set free from waiting for life to start till you get married or waiting for retirement for the good life to start. If you have Jesus, you have the good life, which means you can actually wake up and go to work, even if it's not the ultimate job that you want to end your life with. You can go to work and actually know that Jesus is in you and with you and working through you and that all of ordinary time really matters. And when the delights come, what do we do? We give thanks. And when the disquiets come, what do we do? We pray. We share the burden. We, 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 we hold out our hands and ask for help before God and before our friends. Let me read one last thing from Brother Lawrence. He writes this. He does not ask much of us, merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace, sometimes to offer him your sufferings, at other times to thank him for the graces past and present that he has bestowed on you. In the midst of your troubles, to take solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. That's ordinary life. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to God. One not One need not cry out very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. I think Brother Lawrence should be the patron saint of moms with little kids. Because moms with little kids that want to follow Jesus, they're they're often stressed out about just how much work it takes to be a mom of little kids. And they're like, man, I can't do a quiet time. Like, no, you can't do a quiet time. There's no quiet time for the next at least 14 years of your life. Right? It's like, so what does that mean? Does that mean I don't get to walk with Jesus? Does, what does that mean? Well, Brother Lawrence is a great example because what he realizes if he was washing dishes, 
Jesus was right there with him when he was washing dishes. When he was cleaning the monastery, when he was mending clothes, when he was doing the regular routines of life, he realized that the presence of the living God was there. And he started to learn that he could converse with him and enjoy him and thank him for the good graces and cast his cares on him when the disquiets came and that God was nearer because of the finished work of Jesus than his next breath. So time, right? Time, disquiets and delights. They're both coming. Jesus tasted all those disquiets for you. He didn't sin so that he can come to your aid and come to your help in your time of trouble. He's here. Time matters now because of Jesus. And there is no division of time in the kingdom of God between the sacred and the secular. It's all holy because Jesus is in all of it. Feasting's holy. Fasting's holy. Monday morning's holy. Friday night, date night's holy. Sunday morning's holy. We get to do all of this in him and with him and through him.